You are listening to National Security Law Today. Welcome to National Security Law Today. We're your source for growth in the area of national security law every week, whether you're locked down or roaming freely about the planet. I'm Elisa. And I'm Yvette. We're here today to talk about the future of cyber policy and recent cybersecurity incidents that affected several federal government agencies and private companies, which have been publicly attributed to Russia. Our guest today is Sean Joyce, global and U.S. leader for PricewaterhouseCoopers Cybersecurity, Privacy, and Forensics Practice, and previously the Chief Trust Officer at Airbnb. And most notably, Sean served as the Deputy Director of the FBI, supporting both Bob Mueller and Jim Comey. And prior to being Deputy Director, Sean was also the Executive Assistant Director of the FBI's National Security Branch, which is composed of not just the Counterterrorism Branch, but also the Counterintelligence Division, the Directorate of Intelligence and the Weapons of Mass Destruction uh, Directorate. That's a lot of words. (laughs) Sean, welcome to National Security Law Today. We're glad you could join us. Thanks for having me. All right, let's start with recent, a recent cybersecurity incident that involved the company SolarWinds. Now, first, just break this down for our listeners. What happened there? So I think first, Elisa, everyone needs to understand this was a very sophisticated nation state attack. And as you previously mentioned, attributed to Russia. But what I think is very interesting is we had a nation state actor go into a company where they were actually developing software. So we're talking about the Orion product, which is a network management product that SolarWinds puts out. So they went into that development environment where the coders are kind of making the code and they actually deployed their malicious code into that. And it was uploaded so that customers could then, like many software companies, provide updates. So what happened in this case is the Orion product has 33,000 customers globally. Fortunately, like all of us, not everyone downloaded the update. So approximately 18,000 customers actually upgraded their software. So then we get into the sophistication of what the malware actually was and what the Russians actually put into the code that many of these 18,000 customers, right? They all downloaded it. Um, They actually gave the ability for a basic, a backdoor. And a backdoor is another way where you can deliver some code that is going to allow the adversary to travel throughout the victim's network and actually, you know, at will do what they may. The other thing that made this very sophisticated is they actually disabled security tools on the victim's network. And then they obfuscated traffic that was egress, right? Traffic leaving a company. They made it look like it was part of the original Orion product. So extremely sophisticated. But I think what we want to note here is out of those 18,000 customers that actually downloaded the software, We've only seen around 50 or so that have actually seen some type of additional activity. And I think this points to the context of this breach. And that means why did Russia do this? And it really clearly was for espionage, as we can see some of the US government agencies that have been 
uh, infiltrated in, in some of the other, I would say, tech companies that have also been infiltrated. This was a very targeted attack. But what I think is most critical to some of us out there that are all users is you know, good cyber hygiene in my business is turning on automatic updates. So all of us at home, we have our Microsoft or we have our Apple, we turn on automatic updates. So those new updates come to us regularly and do that. This sort of agreement or trust between you and the person providing those updates has now been broken because you know it used to be you had that signed certificate, you knew you were good to go and, uh, and could take that update. And this is something I think that will have broader effects and something that all of us are going to have to look for new ways to deal with. But this is not the first effort by Russia. So of course, one of the questions that I had for you is how is it different from what Russia's done in the past? And what does it really say about America's readiness to defend against cyber attacks and protect our systems from foreign adversaries? If sort of all of our presumptions, you know, download the patch, do this, do that, we're sort of upended by this Russian effort. You know, I, th I think that's a it's a great question. And as we've seen, when you look at the nation states, and certainly Russia and China are probably the top two sophisticated players. You know, you have when we talk about the big four, which is Russia, China, North Korea, and Iran, there is a clear separation as far as ability goes, and Russia and China are at the top. What I think we saw here is a nation state actually getting a lot more strategic on how they're conducting these attacks and then basically having access at will. So what they did is they really looked at a piece of software that was ubiquitous, right? Out of the Fortune 500, there were over 420 companies that actually use this software. So like it's almost, you know, if a, if a nation state is going to try to basically intrude on a private sector company with the skills and resources they have, they're going to do this. But I think this shows that they're really looking at, hey, what software are companies using that they're depending on? And almost, you know, I would advocate companies should be looking at from a software concentration risk. Are there certain pieces of software that they're you know, relying on that could expose them? So I think you see Russia moving from an attack like they had on the, you know, the Democratic National Committee, when you look at the NotPetya attack, where, which was certainly an attack that was more of a wipe of virus and destructive, but that was initially aimed at the Ukraine. Here, what we're looking at is this was clearly, I think, targeted for espionage, clearly looking at a long-term persistent threat but also like, I think it was very targeted, regardless of the 18,000 customers that downloaded it, the fact that there were so few companies that actually saw additional activity, I think is indicative of how targeted they are. And then, you know, as I mentioned before, really exploiting that trusted relationship where, you know, as you said on those patches, when companies issue them, there's a certificate. And that's how basically your computer communicates and okays that patch. And they've really now exploited that relationship. And I think we have to go back and see how we actually deal with that. But I think also it exposes 
what we haven't been doing well from a private and public sector. I think we still haven't established those norms. We haven't been able to impose the right costs. And I think we'll talk about the Solarium Commission later, but really, you know, here's where a very sophisticated breach affecting many customers that were really at Russia's will about which ones they wanted to exploit in, in going further. So, you know, I think as you and I both know, the government has to sort of learn to adjust to this new paradigm and deal with it effectively, which I'm afraid we, we need to do much better. Yeah, well, Americans learning about what took place is certainly going to, uh, Americans are gonna wonder, how can we punish the people who are behind this, right? We're gonna assume they're state actors, maybe military personnel, intelligence personnel, um, but it, it raises a couple of questions the first thing is, how does the United States currently punish malicious cyber actors? And second, which is, why is that level of response or that the timing of the response really not enough? Yeah, so the, the U.S. government is learning, and I, and I do think they have done a good job. I just think we have to progress better and in more effectively and, and faster. So when you look at back in 2014, when the Department of Justice indicted the five PLA members, um, you know, that was a, I think, a certainly first time that we actually named nation states. When you look at that versus the historical things we used to do with MLATs and letters rogatory, which is, you know, the traditional way of international cooperation, I think we have got to, you know, take on the challenge of these global networks and the adversary's ability, right, to hide, to really increase the interagency coordination, increase the international, you know, law enforcement and intelligence agencies co cooperation, and we have to involve the private sector. So, you know, I would I would say that, you know, the Department of Justice has done a very good job targeting some of these folks. I would just say we have to go after them more aggressively and in a much more efficient way. So I would be a huge advocate, for instance, of I think we need some type of international task force in cyber and actually having, you know, DOJ prosecutors as part of that task force and from other, you know, member countries throughout the world um, along with investigators that are going to be able to address some of these things. When you look at, and when you talk about nation state acti activity, whether you talk about organized crime or criminals and their activity, the barriers to entry in this space are virtually non-existent, right? There's no cost of entry, really very, very small. It is very easy to hide your attribution where you are, and in what you're doing, and but the potential for harm and damage is great. And that's why I think we need to kind of look at some different models to really address this effectively from a whole of US government approach. So let's dig a little bit more deeply into that, right? So you're talking about the investigatory side, but you've also developed opinions about national cyber policy and how we should change more broadly in order to, you know, harden ourselves against these kinds of attacks. What are some other suggestions you have um, in the upstream? Good question, Yvette. You know, from a policy perspective, 
I think the you know Cyberspace Solarium Commission did a great job. I think as we've seen, I think it was approximately I think 26 out of the 82 recommendations were uh, made part of the National Defense Authorization Act. So I think you know when you look at that paper and it's about layered deterrence is what they call it, and it has like three main parts, which is shape behavior, and that is really working with our counterparts internationally and how we are developing norms. The second part is denying benefits. And that is really both a public and private sector responsibility to raise the general level of cyber security hygiene. And then the third is imposed costs. And I think the imposed costs, we just talked about one of the ways where we actually indict people, but there are obviously other ways to impose costs on our adversaries that would allow us to do that. And then, you know, that from, you know, when you go from a policy perspective, but then I have, I think you have to go from an operational perspective. And I am a huge advocate in the US government of really reinventing the way we're addressing cyber. And I think we should be taking what the Department of Justice and the FBI have done around terrorism and apply this to cyber from the perspective of a like a joint terrorism task force type approach where you have to bring in all the member agencies. And that means the FBI, the NSA, the CIA, the Secret Service, right? You need to bring in uh, the prosecutors, you need to bring in the analysts, you need to bring in DHS. And I believe it needs to be a task force approach. And I would advocate that you know the public-private communication should be handled by CISA and DHS. So if people are not confused in the private sector about the FBI approaching them, NSA approaching them, the Secret Service approaching them, people are actually confused. So I think we need to consolidate that. And CISA would be the entity that actually communicates, exchanges information with the private sector. Then you have the actual investigative intelligence operations part which I would advocate would be jointly led by the NSA, CIA, and FBI uh, and Secret Service. And those where domestically, the FBI offices would be the arms and legs of this entity. And then internationally, obviously, the NSA would take the lead there. But here's where on these investigations, when you have all these agencies together, you're able to really address the cyber threat, both domestically and internationally. And then I'd have an analytical piece that would also be a combination of many of those agencies. So it really like we've got to look at how do we address this differently? And I still think there's a, uh, unfortunately some uh, jurisdictional arguments still happening. And I still think there's some great inefficiencies. And I would tell you, you know, the men and women in all those agencies do great work every day but it would certainly be much more effective if I think we brought those together. So pod super fans um, will recall our cast on the Solarium Commission and on the NDAA. So if you wanna do deeper dives into those subjects that Sean just raised, please uh, check out our archives. So Sean, what you're talking about is a kind of a major restructure and I've lived through some government reorgs and those take a while. Can you tell us like, what some key policy goals are that President Biden should accomplish quickly in the, in the near term to protect the country immediately 
and deter bad actors, right? We're under attack now. So what yes. can we do um, while we're waiting to shore up the, the government bureaucracy behind these efforts? You know, that I, I would say, like, I don't think what I just, you know, talked about is that difficult, right? I know people don't like change, but all those, those agencies and responsibilities exist. And it's a matter of someone bringing them together and saying, this is how we're going to address this. So it does frustrate me a little bit that sometimes people are unwilling, right, to look at how we actually more effectively and efficiently use our taxpayers' money. Um, and, you know, I was on both sides of that. And I, I'm just a huge advocate, like, we can do this, right? We can. There are great people in all those places. But let's jump to the, the policy thing. So if I was advising uh, President Biden, there's a couple of things. First, we need a federal data breach notification law. We don't need 50 states breach notification law, right? It, it's, it's confusing. It is difficult. We don't have a way to actually look at how we can improve as an entire country to understand our cybersecurity posture and what is actually happening. It would also give us more knowledge about our adversaries and their capabilities. So, you know, that would obviously have to be built in with some type of assurance that companies would not be penalized. And I think the Department of Justice, when Eric, Eric Holder was there, did exactly that about sharing information. So this is not something that uh, is impossible and I think it needs to be done. So I would ask, you know, my friends in Congress, we need to do that quickly. Second, we need a federal data privacy law. We see that sprouting up all over the place now with, you know, the CCPA out in California, they just passed the COPA. We've seen uh, Virginia recently, other states kind of were following in the same way of breach notification. We need an overall, you know, federal privacy law. We can certainly use the general data protection regulation, the GDPR that the Europe is using as a framework. But I just think we've collectively need to do that. Now, when you want to get a little more um, granular, I do like um, President Biden has been a proponent and we'll see from the Solarium Commission that there'll be a, you know, national cyber uh, director that he will nominate that was passed in the NDAA. So I think he's really elevating, and I think that's a great move, uh, the importance of cyber. And you've also seen within the NSC, Ian Newberger being brought over is also from the NSA is also elevating that. From a kind of investigative intelligence perspective, I'd like to see some administrative subpoena authority I think the law is moving much too slow regarding technology. And really, I think you can uh, limit that to really looking at how to quickly identify some adversaries and, and really request some, I think, basic information. And then you can look at some other, I think, things we could do to consolidate what I had talked about earlier. Some of you may know that Australia is looking at right now, and I'm, I'm working with kind of some policy folks over there about how they actually strengthen their collaboration with the private sector and look at if certain breaches happen, how the government can step in. So another you know, thing that I can relay is when you have a you know, Sony type attack which was attributed to North Korea. 
when you have an Equifax, and these are two of the clients that I was at after I had retired from the FBI, private companies cannot defend themselves against nation state actors. So really having the ability for certain government agencies to come in and assist, I think would also be an important policy measure. That was a long-winded answer, Yvette, sorry. <laughs> no, no, it's, it's great. And just for um, the uninitiated in the privacy law sphere, COPA is the Child Online Protection Act, and the CCPA is the California Consumer Privacy Act, which kind of wags the dog um, as far as regulating uh, privacy in the U.S. because there isn't a federal law. So, you know, just like with uh, fossil fuels, California's come in to set like the high bar regulation, um, same thing is happening with privacy. So Um, can we also add, Sean flew over this, that the general data protection regulations are a scheme that was adopted in the European Union, and it limits access by government agencies across the globe, basically to citizens' private data and EU citizens' data. And moreover, in the preamble, declares that it is their property. Their data is their property to give or not to give. Right. And there's a lot of pushback with uh, big tech as far as, you know, when when GDPR before it was put into effect about having to comply with all these different regulatory schemes. But we're finding as I jump into the next section that some sort of regulation is necessary when you think about how vulnerable big tech is regulating itself. Right. So that's that's a great segue into talking about um, Facebook and Cambridge Analytica. If we think about the 2016 election and the role that Cambridge Analytica played both in uh, the United States and with Brexit in the UK. And we also you know, bring it full circle to the role that social media played uh, during the insurrection at the Capitol. We kind of realize that this isn't just a Facebook problem. There's more than just Facebook out there. Can, can we talk about some of the newest players in the game and what this means going forward? Yeah, I, I, yeah, I think it's, you know, this is one of the, I think the most important questions facing us as a, as a nation, you know, and as Elisa mentioned and you've commented, right? When you look across the globe, look at the legal frameworks around the internet. And when I look over to, when you take China, right? It is a government-led legal framework. When you look at the EU, it is actually a consumer-led legal framework with GDPR, as we've just talked. When you come to the United States, I don't know what we call that framework, because there really isn't one, right? And And it's an ongoing battle. And Yvette, I think it goes to this question where we have not successfully dealt with this issue. And, you know, the social media platforms are certainly getting a lot of attention. I think we've also seen the the splinter social media platforms like Parler certainly start to come into existence. And I think there's some, you know, all separate issues there. And then you have other like smaller, I would call them alternative platforms like MeWe, which is really all about no ads, complete trust and not kind of utilizing folks' data. You know, one of the things when I am talking to people that I always say is, when we all look at our phones, how many apps do you have on your phone? And I say to them, how many did you pay for? And I said, if you didn't pay for the app, you are the product, right? And a lot of people don't understand, I think, the business model as we saw 
in some of the congressional hearings with these social media companies. But what I think we really have to look at closely, you know, based on especially the, the siege of the Capitol on January 6th, is this thing called disinformation, which I will define as really looking at how basically people and individuals are deliberately spreading misleading, false, or biased information throughout whatever social media platform you're talking about. And it's been around for a long time, but I think it's really becoming a tool for many of these nation states, as we've talked about before, about the 2016 election. I think we saw it in this election, as you saw the call out about Iran. And now we're seeing it on events like we had on January 6th. And I think we have not got to the point where the law has actually caught up with technology. And we've got to look at how we look at some of these platforms and determine are they more than just a third party providing First Amendment right material, right? Freedom of, I mean, we constantly hear when we're talking about, you know, Section 230 and the liability of these platforms about are they actual media outlets? And I would proffer to everyone listening, they are media outlets, right? In the 21st century, people are not going to the typical television uh, network, CBS, NBC for their news most of us are going to Twitter or Facebook or, you know, some other online social media platform to get our news. And I really think we've get it. We have to get our arms around this problem and we need to look at, you know, whether it's a combination, you know, I think we all see every uh, Sunday, I think Facebook puts out a full page ad in the Washington post about basically supporting regulation I think we need to look at this collectively. And I don't want to put this all on the social, social media platforms. This is a, an issue, I think, that we as a society need to all weigh in on, right? I think people need to understand, and I think the social media platforms need to be completely transparent about what they do with data, how they collect the data, and how the data is used. And I think we need to look at perhaps segmenting some of these social media platforms for what is actual, what we would call media and and be guided by the same, I would say guidelines, regulations, et cetera, that the New York Times, Washington Post, NBC, CBS have, and then looking at maybe other segments of their social media platform that are treated differently. So, you know, this is something I I tell you that is near and dear to my heart, and we need to get our arms around it quickly. So, Sean, you mentioned Section 230. That's Section 230 of the Communication Decency Act, which basically prevents platforms like Facebook um, from being held liable for content that's posted on their site, right? They, they say that they're not a, a publisher, right? A media publisher, and that's why they're not held to standards like the New York Times, and that's why they're able to allow, you know, misinformation to proliferate on the platform without threat of being sued, 
But, uh, you know, as you're referencing, this is a huge challenge and it is an interesting idea to think about segmenting these sites, the businesses that these sites have. In fact, Facebook just caused some fairly seismic news overnight in saying that it's going to pull its news business out of Australia because Australia wants to charge Facebook for publishing the news. So this is actually quite a complicated issue, right? There are, are like their calls to have reforms for uh, Section 230 um, from both sides of the aisle for different reasons, but it looks like there are some changes to come. Like what kinds of updates would you recommend? I, I think, you know, you, you, you made some great comments there that, and I think, you know, all of these companies, they have hundreds of people every day, right? Looking at how to take down content, um, you know, obviously they're doing algorithms that are looking at to help them do this, but I would just say it's not enough, right? It is just not enough. And what I would ask is, I think, you know, I go back to our legislature branch that is not, I don't think, stepped up to the table when it comes to addressing sort of the new world we live in. And, and that is, you know, the ability to look at how the world works right now and, you know, come together with some of these companies, come together with, you know, parts of government like the Department of Justice and others and look at how do we actually regulate some of these activities successfully. I think a core though piece of this and is about de developing uh, social media literacy or education. So, you know, many of the core things that we can do are based in education. And I am a huge advocate, especially when we're talking about the use of the internet as a whole, that we should be starting this type of literacy education really in elementary schools and continuing that education so we can make sure that every person knows how to, for themselves, right? educate themselves on various things, be able to go to the right sites, make sure they're not creating an echo chamber, right? That these companies algorithm is not pointing them to more sites that just think the way they do. So I, I think education is a huge piece of it. I think regulation is a part of it. And I also think recharacterizing some of these platforms on the information they provide is a third piece. So I think we need to make sure that we look at this differently. I would tell you, like, I look at this broken down into sources of influence, channels of influence, and targets of influence. All right. When I, and I look at the sources of influence, you're talking about nation states, like we mentioned, Russia affecting the election. We're talking about just influencers of groups. When you talk about white supremacists, when you talk about terrorists, when you talk about political activists, when I talk about channels of influence, I'm talking about, you know, social media, mainstream media, you know, alternative media. And when I talk of targets of influence, I'm talking about the consumers. I'm talking about corporations, public sector entities, right? This is sort of, to me, how we can look at this. And we need to be looking at, I think, like, can we change the sources of influence? I think that would be very difficult uh, to say that we're gonna change uh, Russia's activities that can be done. 
I think when we talk about the imposed costs in some ways, but it's more difficult. When we talk about the channels of influence, I think we've already talked about maybe some of the things we can do legislatively uh, there. But when we talk about the targets, I think this is where we come back to us as users taking on that responsibility, right? And this is where I think that users have to educate themselves. Users have to take on the responsibility to really be able to say, I'm not just gonna look at this site. How do I actually uh, make sure I am getting a balanced view or looking at the other, another side of an argument uh, and going forward? So, I, you know, I really think we gotta start looking at other ways we can do this. You know, I do think though on that first part, the sources of influence, I don't know if you know, there was a, a recent bill that was introduced that was uh, basically the Foreign Agent Registration Act, where it talks about any uh, foreign entity has to declare themselves, right? And, and it will be on the advertisement or something like that. I think we could also do that with bots, right? That's how a lot of this disinformation is spread that, hey, this is being done in an automated way. So there are definitely steps I think we need to take and can take. It's just, uh, I would just ask, you know, our legislators to really kind of take the lead on that. And uh, really it's a, a team approach to this. So uh, Sean, you're not the first person on the cast to recommend um, that our users uh, take a more ownership of the media that they're consuming. I would love to direct our listeners back to one of the earliest podcasts we had, a wonderful podcast with Elizabeth Renskoff Parker and Suzanne Spaulding talking about the importance of civic education and also, you know, making sure people are literate and they're informed consumers of news. But I got to say, Sean, confirmation bias is a hell of a drug to paraphrase one of my favorite comedians. It's really hard to pry people away from, you know, from reading and staying in their silos, right? You know, if you read about people who participated in the, you know, January 6th attack on the Capitol, they talk about being wrapped up in this QAnon conspiracy. And some of them talk about like the scales falling from their eyes after President Biden was sworn in and feeling, you know, disillusioned. I just, I, I, you know, I, I'm feeling a, a little bit uh, uh, concerned that it's going to take w- more than just policy to pull people out of, of these rabbit holes. Is there something that the platforms can do? Is, is, or is this just kind of like something that's just going to wash out of the culture? I, I will tell you, Yvette, I don't think we can let it just wash out. And I I think it it is something we have to address. You know, another thing that I would be an advocate of is sort of a public service announcement type of thing that ISPs and platforms could be putting out that is that constant education, right? And I think we need to get into the labeling of some of these activities. I would tell you, you know, you raise a point and, and I think many of us are frustrated about where we are as a country, you know, regarding sort of this technology. And technology has done many fascinating, positive, great things, but there's also the dark side of technology. And I think we've seen some of that. And I think we've really got to, you know, buckle down and do some of these things. So like that literacy education, obviously I'm a huge proponent of. I think you have to do that public service announcement to help people get out of that 
echo chamber, right? That confirmation bias drug. It's like an opioid, right? And, and get out of that. And I do think you need regulation and some of these platforms need to be characterized and regulated differently. Okay, so I, I a couple of concepts quickly for our listeners. One is something called a micro-targeting algorithm, which is uh, what it, Sean has uh, referred to here. And that is the thing that has placed us in our silos. If you're a national security lawyer and you don't know what a micro-targeting algorithm is, find out. It'll change your life and you'll feel like the smartest person in the room. Uh, that was an algorithm developed to sell goods and services. Certainly was not intended to sell democracy. Uh, so that's the first thing. Um, the second thing is he's referred to the Foreign Agents Registration Act in its plainest form. That is an act that requires persons to note the source of who's behind what they're publishing. In other words, if you run a radio station called Russia or Sputnik, you got to say that this is a Russian-sponsored television station. But on Facebook or the other platforms right now, attribution is not required. So just to break that down into more simple terms, what Sean's saying is, hey, maybe we should force attribution. Okay. <laughs> so I just wanted to, you know, Sean's so brilliant. I, I just don't want him to talk way above everybody's heads, but these are new concepts. We will hyperlink some information that will better explain this uh, to our listeners today. Our guest today has been Sean Joyce, the former Dep deputy director of the FBI, frankly, overall, the national security matters. He is a person very well positioned. He's battle weary from dealing with state actors and cyber events. He's learned the hard way and he has a lot of actual experience as opposed to being an opiner. Um, and frankly, let me add, was an actual agent. He was not just a management guy. He was a guy who knew how to get it done. He wasn't just good at the paperwork. So for me, that gives him bona fides beyond the normal policy person. So I'm so glad that we had him on. Sean, really great to have you. Please come back in the future. Thanks, Elisa. Thanks, Yvette. I really enjoyed the conversation. We're going to continue delivering content to you during these difficult times. As we speak, there is a winter storm bearing down in D.C., and there's one that swept through Texas, but we, the podcast <laughs> will continue. Um, we want you all to grow your knowledge of the law, legal opportunities, and all events that affect national security law. It goes without saying that if you want to be smart, you need to hit that subscribe button on your app of choice so you get these podcasts in your feed. You can send us comments and feedback. We do want to hear from you. That's how we get better. You can contact us on Twitter at ABA NATSEC or send us an email at nationalsecurity at americanbar.org. And the Standing Committee on Law and National Security will do whatever it can to keep you informed and give you context on these fast-moving legal developments. And don't forget that the lawyers hosting this podcast are here in their individual capacity and not on behalf of any agency or firm. We'll be back next week with more content. Be well, everyone, and be safe. We're all in this together, even though we're apart, even though we're all being targeted by different micro-targeting algorithms. Hey, let's come together through education, knowledge, and growth, and let's be smarter than the algorithm. The views expressed on national security law today have not been approved by the House of Delegates or the Board of Governors of the American Bar Association and accordingly should not be construed as representing ABA policy.